Hello everyone, I'm Paris Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox, hosted by Richard Lummis. Hello, and welcome to another episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast about leadership. This is Richard Lummis. I'm here with Tom Fox for another discussion on how to improve our leadership skills by learning from others, drawing lessons from many sources, including history, fiction, film, and business writing. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you, Richard. Today, we're continuing our series on U.S. presidents to discuss James Monroe of Virginia, the fifth president uh, in office from 1817 to 1825. Prior to that, he served in the Continental Army during the Revolutionary War and being wounded at the Battle of Trenton. After studying law under Thomas Jefferson, he served as a delegate to the Continental Congress under the Articles of Confederation. He later served as a United States Senator in the First Congress, then later as Governor of Virginia. As a diplomat to France, he helped negotiate the Louisiana Purchase before serving as Secretary of State and Secretary of War for Madison. He's probably best known today for the Monroe Doctrine, which was probably not his idea and didn't become known by that name <laughs> until the 1850s. Uh, today we're going to discuss some of his other substantive accomplishments as president, um, in addition to that one. He was the last of the founding fathers to serve as president, and he was also the last of what was called the Virginia Dynasty, and where four of the first five presidents came from Virginia. He did own slaves throughout his life, um, and he was actually the personal target of an abortive slave revolt when he was governor of Virginia. Uh, Tom, what did you find most striking about Monroe and his leadership style? Richard, if I can start with one uh, and then circle back to it at the end, because I had anticipated this podcast would turn on the Missouri Compromise, which was one of the signature pieces of legislation during his his time, perhaps the signature piece. What I found in, in our research was that uh, he was largely not in a leadership role in that, although he did play an important part at the end that uh, perhaps we can circle back to. So um, I, I was a little surprised in that. Uh, a couple of, or maybe one observation that we were talking about before we went on air. When I uh, recalled my prior study of Monroe, I just remember he being quite a bland character. And uh, certainly between or following uh, three or four of our greatest presidents uh, and um, the ones after him, uh, perhaps are a little more famous uh, as well, and that um, sort of like the 1970s, nothing really happened. Nothing really happened under his administration. But as we looked into it and as I researched for this podcast, I found several things that I thought were, were significant and certainly uh, useful business leadership, uh, not only concepts, but actually tactics. And it, the first tactic that I either was not aware of or I'd completely forgotten um, was that Monroe was the first president to go out to all of the states. Now, I don't mean to say he went to every state, but he traveled throughout the United States. He traveled up to Maine, he traveled out to Detroit, uh, went to South, uh, I think to South Carolina, and went into what was then the, the West. Uh, so <clears throat> he literally got out of the ivory tower and went out into the field. Yeah. And for a business, and particularly on his first trip, it was great acclaim. Uh, from the populace, and they were thrilled to see their president come to what was in a very far-flung uh, country, or excuse me, far-flung travel. In fact, the first trip took him 15 weeks 
So that was 15 weeks he was away from Washington. But it really pointed up to me the not only the need for a business leader to get out of the office and travel, but also the positive benefits. Uh, the times that I had been a general counsel or other position on an executive leadership team in a corporation when I did travel uh, out uh, internationally, frankly, the troops were thrilled. They were thrilled that someone from the home, home office would come out and see them, and they would... Uh, give you information that they would not give you in an email and would not give you over the phone. <clears throat> so it was a great co- way to communicate. And finally, it, it helped me develop a personal relationship with people so that then later, if an issue did come up, uh, they felt comfortable in emailing or calling me because I did have a personal relationship. So I was really struck by that tactic that Monroe used, the first president to use it. It's now used uh, by many other presidents uh, subsequently, but um, it was uh, just get out of the office. Get out and go meet meet your constituents, meet your employees, meet your customers, uh, meet your suppliers, meet your agents, meet your vendors. Uh, it uh, is a very positive thing. It means something to both the people you meet and something for you as well. Yeah, I thought that was, that was an interesting tactic on his part. Now, this was... It's, it's called the era of good feelings, and we're supposed to think, I think, that the decline of the Federalist Party had led to sort of a uh, unity of thought and feelings among the country, but I think that was kind of a myth. But you're right, that by going out and having personal interaction with, uh, with the citizens, that he, uh, he definitely got things off on the right foot. In fact, uh, to your point on the the misnomer of the era of good feelings, I now recall in my high school textbook, it was a we, my chapter was entitled "The Era of uh, Factionalism and Sectionalism." <laughs> so uh, I guess it just depends on how you look at things, which also leads to a point that we both commented upon earlier, which is Monroe occasionally suffers from comparisons to the Virginia dynasty of Washington, Jefferson, and Madison. He, he, we both laughed that he was certainly not a Renaissance man like Jefferson because his overwhelming interest and passion was politics. But that led to one of his strengths that we could talk about, which was he was a deliberate thinker and had the ability to look at an issue from all sides, encouraging debate from his advisors. This is not the sort of, um, I think, uh, really... Uh, types of debate that uh, we talked about in the Madison podcast because uh, he really encouraged uh, debate from pros and cons within his cabinet. He had a uh, really stellar cabinet of top-notch thinkers and that they brought numerous options to him. He was not forced to um, go to war uh, with any of the major European powers as Madison had, but he had several important issues come up during his presidency and having those types of uh, personnel around him allowed him to <clears throat> stretch himself and his vision because he surrounded himself uh, with top-notch people. So uh, uh, clearly another uh, uh, sterling leadership lesson from that component of Monroe's character. Well, and I think it's also important to note that his cabinet was deliberately geographically diverse. Yes. And this was at a time when many of the grave political differences were based on uh, geography, uh, the what was then the Old West of Ohio um, had very different interests from the manufacturing centers of New England or the uh, the cotton plantations of the South. But by putting people from each of those groups in, he definitely made sure that he heard a variety of opinions. Um, 
he did deliberately exclude Federalists from it, um, so he didn't necessarily <laughs> want complete ideological diversity, but I thought that was interesting. And the other thing is he always made it clear that he was the final arbiter. Yes. Um, he encouraged robust discussion, but he knew when to cut it off and say, this is what we're doing. And then once everyone had their marching orders, they tended to be quite loyal to him, I think because they had been heard. And that really led to, uh, leads to two points I wanted to raise, which was um, that leaders face challenges that others are unwilling to engage upon, and just because an idea has more votes doesn't make it right. Uh, and the two leadership principles I drew from that were that Madison, excuse me, Monroe would take the council and would in, in, indeed perhaps even allow a cabinet vote, but at the end of the day, he was the leader and he was willing to chase the, uh, excuse me, face the challenges uh, that others were unwilling to do so. So uh, whether it was kind of a pro or uh, failing to score any victories in, in Congress, he was able to have a huge voice for the country because he took on uh, issues that others uh, were were not willing to face. Yeah, and I guess one of the other things about him was that he was always uh, courteous. Yes. Um, which, again, I think goes a long way to make people feel that they've had a, um, a legitimate hearing, uh, that they've been able to air their opinion, and that it was considered. Uh, he was not uh, uh, the fastest decision maker. He was very deliberate, but uh, I think we both worked for people that were deliberate in the, their decision making process. They were deliver, deliberate in their speaking, and I found that to to be something that uh, also a business leader should should consider. Um, it's not the speed of your decision. It's not the number of decisions you make. Uh, sometimes it, you need to be deliberate, and I recognize that uh, it may be into you may have to into it when you need to have some more deliberation. But uh, sometimes the best decision is not always uh, the quickest one when you can take counsel and then come to a a, a decision. There was one incident during his presidency that I want to talk to you about and get your opinion on it as a, uh, basically it's a personnel matter. And at the time, uh, slaves from Georgia, Alabama, and South Carolina were fleeing across the border to Florida, which was then owned by Spain, and living in the swamps with Seminole Indians. And so uh, Monroe sent Andrew Jackson to Florida to uh, basically stop this, and uh, I'm blanking on the name of the fort that was there that was, that was actually manned by fugitive slaves. Um, but anyway, so he, he invaded Florida, um, interpreting his instructions rather liberally, shall we say, um, took control of Pensacola, deposed the Spanish governor, and then he executed two British citizens. Um, this almost caused another war with, with England. Um, and then his cabinet was fighting over whether to reprimand Jackson or not. Right. So what did you think about this? So from the leadership perspective of Monroe, as opposed to Andrew Jackson, um, I had a couple of thoughts. One is that you need to consider the person you send to a job is whether they're qualified to do that job. Now, as a military leader at that point in the country's history, Andrew Jackson 
had as high a profile as any uh, military leader. Uh, he had just subdued uh, the Creek and Cherokee Indians in Alabama. His tactics were well known. Um, and I think that and shall we say not politically correct? And not politically correct, if we can use that term uh, on this podcast as well. Um, so uh, the question is, did Monroe choose the right person? Um, as um, an American expansionist, I would say he did. And I would say that he chose Jackson because he was the foremost military leader, but also because of Jackson's known reputation. Uh, now, what that led to was the point you raised on the execution of the two British citizens. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure what Monroe's responsibility is there, although I would have to say he had to, have, if not been aware, was responsible for vague orders that uh, someone like Andrew Jackson would interpret uh, in the, the broadest scope possible. Yeah. One of the things that struck me was that the the man who wanted to reprimand Jackson was Calhoun, who was, of course, a slave owner and a representative of the South, on whose behalf Jackson was actually waging this rather interesting campaign. And his defender was John Quincy Adams from Massachusetts. Uh, And I would have picked them as being on opposite sides of that. Uh, Yes, uh, although he... uh Jackson became in conflict with both of those later in life, so uh, perhaps not surprising. Well, and of course, one of the things about uh, John Quincy Adams was that he was able to use this, uh, or these events, uh, to convince Spain to sell Florida. Yes. So in the end, it all turned out well, but it was just an interesting uh, example of a possibly runaway employee and, and what you can do to... To minimize that, uh, what I, I guess we we can only speculate on, but my guess has always been that Monroe knew exactly what he was doing, and that was the entire reason to send Jackson down there. That he knew he would do something that would cause the Spanish to become amenable to a sale. Not that Spain didn't need the money in eighteen nineteen. I think that was the date of the sale, sure. but um, uh, it certainly led to the United States uh, accomplishing something that had been a goal for quite some time, which was to bring the, uh, the uh, Spanish country of Florida into the uh, United States of America. Yeah. And, and subsequently, um, and Monroe did recognize the breakaway colonies in Latin America yes. that had rebelled from Spain, but uh, not before he was able to buy Florida, which I thought was probably not coincidental. You know, what I'd like to do now, Richard, if we could, is circle back to the Missouri Compromise. Sure. Because uh, this was the point or the issue with the greatest import, uh, certainly historically, uh, in retrospect at least, from the Monroe administration. And uh, I had anticipated that we would talk about Monroe's leadership during this uh, legislation leading up to the bill. And it, it turned out it wasn't really his leadership at all. Yeah. But he did play a role in it, and uh, his role was an interesting role. It was different than I had recalled from my uh, historical memory, uh, but it was a role that uh, I think a business leader can can draw, if not inspiration, certainly lessons from. And his role in this was to sign the bill, and he signed the bill even though he thought it was unconstitutional, and he thought it was wrong. 
nevertheless, he believed that if he did not sign the bill, even in 1820, that there might be some sort of civil war. And so he subsumed his reservations for what he believed at that point was a greater good. Uh, you know, perhaps if you want to debate whether they just should have you know, put on the boxing gloves and done it in 1820, it would have been less of a, a bloodbath than in 1861. You know, perhaps we could have that debate too. But uh, I found that to be a very interesting lesson for the business leader that uh, Monroe was able to subsume his not only his preference, but his personal feelings, and do something which he thought was uh, the greater good for the country. Yeah, I mean, a quick refresher, um, in case you don't remember your high school history. Um, <laughs> what happened was Missouri was uh, petitioning for admission as a slave state. Um, at the time, the Senate was evenly divided between slave and free states, and so the admission of Missouri as a slave state would have tilted the balance uh, in the Senate in favor of the slave states. The ultimate compromise was that uh, Maine would be admitted as a separate state um, so that the, the balance in the Senate would be maintained and that slavery would be limited in the area, or not allowed in the area north of 36 degrees, 30 minutes north latitude, which was the southern border of Missouri. Um, ultimately, this uh, caused a lot of problems because only two states were subsequently admitted. I guess three, if you count Texas. Uh, south of that, I would whereas, count Texas. Yes, but nine, uh, nine north of it. Um, so yeah, I agree. He, he he did show leadership here by subsuming his personal preference, um, and as a slave owner, I think that was that was fairly innate in him that this was. Um, we would expect him to have a different opinion about this, but um, yeah, that was good. Now, whether kicking the can down the road is always a good idea, um, I think we could also argue that point at length. <laughs> it we're, uh, really was a, a fascinating research project, Richard, because uh, I had several preconceptions. I came to this research for this podcast on, and it turned out that most of them were either completely wrong or uh, what I found was different, the leadership lessons were different from his uh, that I would have anticipated. Nevertheless, uh, he was president for eight years, so he must have been some sort of positive leader or he was re-elected once and re-elected once. Um, so uh, I found that um, a fascinating character, lots to unpack and some significant lessons really for the 2017 business leader as well. Yeah, I agree. Well, thank you, Tom, as always. Uh, it's always interesting, and uh, I've really enjoyed our series on the presidents, which we will continue at some later date. For now, this is goodbye from 12 O'Clock High, and we hope you keep listening. This is Paris Fox again. We hope you enjoyed this episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox. If you enjoyed the show, please go to iTunes and rate the podcast. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.